this month on Security Management Highlights. And when you get into international arena, uh, culture is a big deal. You get into a country and you, 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 what works in Kansas does not work in Kenya. So you got to adjust and it comes down to what what is different. And what I like to remind folks, every risk management formula has a component of risk acceptance. And so what we don't accept in Kansas, we might have to accept in Kenya because culturally that's how it operates over there. So you got to be flexible. I think that's the secret sauce for me to be able to operate in different cultures in different countries. Mr. Don Tostic, CPP and Chief Security Officer for Land O'Lakes, is going to discuss building a security program from the ground up. Plus... But it's going to take some time, you know, and it'll take some cultural shifts, especially in the United States, as far as caring much more so about what data is being collected and then, then having that, that autonomy and control over your own data. And then we'll still see organizations try and skirt around it. And then you also have organizations that may not even know what data they're collecting. I mean, that's also the state of affairs in, in some of these these organizations, or you've got some of the data brokers whose business basically relies on collecting as much data as possible and then selling it. Dr. Andrea Little Lombago, Chief Social Scientist at Virtue.com, is going to tell us more about the General Data Protection Regulation of the European Union. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. I'd like to welcome my next guest, Mr. Don Tosic, CPP. Don is the Chief Security Officer for Land O'Lakes, Inc., he was previously the Senior Manager of Global Security at Harsco Corporation, CSO at the Bureau of Reclamation, Director of Security for the U.S. Executive Office of the President, and retired from the U.S. Army's Military Police Corps. Don, welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. I'm really interested in this subject. We're going to talk about building a security department from scratch, from the ground up, working for Land O'Lakes. This is a global operation, and this was no easy task to start this. Well, thank uh, again, thank you for having me. You know, you only get a chance once in a lifetime to go into a Fortune 500 company and start a program in a 92-year-old company and start from scratch. So that was the cards that was dealt to me, and it, that, that's exciting. It is exciting. That, that is a pretty fascinating thing. And it's like everything in life. Uh, when I first started, it was scary. You know, can I do this? Can I deliver on it? What's the expectations? But, you know, sometimes in life, you got to take a chance. And when a door opens, you got to walk through it. And so that was an opportunity, and I took it. Now, tell us about the scope. This is, this is much bigger than people are thinking. It is big. company operates 530 locations domestically in all 50 states, and we're operating in um, uh, 60 countries around the world. And I can expand on that a little bit. Uh, everybody knows Lionel Lakes because we make butter, and our dairy division, which makes cheese, uh, all kinds of dairy products, is in actually a, a small part of the company. Oh, interesting. We also own Purina Animal Feed Business. If anybody knows about pets sure. and Purina Feed Business, it's also owned by Lionel Lakes. Uh, we're really a farmer-owned cooperative, which means that our owners are also our customer. We're one of America's oldest and largest cooperative farmer-owned co-op, and our chairman of the board is really a dairy farmer out of Wisconsin. So it's pretty, uh, pretty amazing model. We're not publicly traded, but we do touch in the agricultural world everything that uh, results in agriculture, from seed to the food that goes into your mouth on a fork, is we do everything in between. Wow, that's fascinating. So you had to wire this global enterprise together that really didn't have any centralized security system, security plan. I mean, where do you start with this kind of thing? Well, the best way to describe that is uh, Lionel Lake, for most of its history, was a holding company. They bought and sold businesses, and as long as those businesses made money, they let them operate and govern themselves the way they want. However, new CEO came in, new strategy, and we're no longer a holding company. We're an operating company. And all those businesses that were out there no longer get to do it their way. There's only one AT, IT. There's only one HR, 
and now there's only one security program within the company. So we got to bring it all back together and, and create a strategy. How'd you do it? Where'd you start? I mean, Well, uh, the number one step is uh, uh, try to understand the business. Security has got to be responsive to the business, and every decision I make, it's not what's important in the security department. It's what's in- important to that business and the people that had a P&L responsibility. It's got to resonate with them. So the first thing, I had to become a good listener and go meet as many people as I can. And in fact, my boss uh, told me to go out and gave me a list of people I needed to talk to. And those people told me how to talk to about their business. So I went on a two-month listening tour to understand the business, understand where we operate, how we do it, what do we do, how, how does that all relate together, and I needed to understand that. So listening and understanding the business was my first first step. Now, who, would, who was one of your first allies that said, hey, Don, I'm on board here. I'm going to help you do this. Good question. So I, I worked for the general counsel, which was one of the reasons I wanted to come work for Lionel Lakes because the position reports to the general counsel. That's a good place to be if you're a security director. You don't want to be in HR. You don't want to be in real estate. You don't want to be in finance. General counsel is good. And the general counsel, uh, in the list of people he introduced me to, one of the gentlemen I met was our internal director of audit. That gentleman in audit has been with the company for a number of years. He was excited to see the function being stood up in the company because he had problems with audit findings that no, nobody could investigate. And so we partnered up, and he kind of became my, my guide along the yellow brick road to build this program. That's a great person that really sees every level at the company. They do. The audit department goes through all the divisions and looks at things. The law department oversees everything, but audit touches everything, but there's money, they touch it. So here you're learning the business. You're starting from scratch. You get an ally in the audit department. What's the next phase? Is it consensus building? Is it writing a policy? I mean, where do you where do you go from there? About four months after I got there, I was asked to come and brief the board. And that was intimidating. We have a very large board of directors. So I had our exam- entire C-suite there, our executive leadership, our board members in there. And I kind of talk about the strategy. Closing slide on that briefing was anytime we can save shrinkage or we can uh, protect assets or assets that don't walk out, that adds to the bottom line. So I had to have an elevator speech that security is really uh, helping, just like the internal audit, we add to the bottom line. You had to articulate that because that would resonate with the executives. And then we come back and get tactical and start talking to people how we're going to go about doing it. So you started presenting yourself as a, not profit center per se, but certainly not strictly cost center. In other words, yeah, you're a cost center under the budget, but you're, you're recuperating by preventing losses. That's a good sell to the finance people. One of the matrix we run in my department is uh, we do investigations, and the money we recover, we have a policy where we're going to prosecute, but if we can recover money, we take that before prosecution. And we, uh, in my first year in the company, we were able to recover $1.2 million from uh, people that defrauded the company or otherwise stole from us. Now, what was the structure when you got there? And did you add anything to the structure? In other words, security is guards, security is protection of assets, security is access control. And that's what most people think security is. And really, that's not what it is. Did you add anything to that model that they had not seen before? International, uh, managing the international risk portfolio uh, was a big part of it uh, because we're such a diverse company and operating in so many places. 
So understanding their international risk portfolio and bringing in the ability to translate what's going on in the world into what it means into the business, that was a big component of it and still is today. Uh, today, we operate a 24-7 global security operations center. That wasn't there when I came there. Uh, today, that's a game changer for our company. And I've even figured out how to pay for it. A big part of the business uh, is the nonprofit side. There's a, there's a nonprofit uh, part of Land Lakes that operates in, geez, almost every country on earth practically. How did you bring that division into your oversight and make it work? So you did your homework. You know, you, you, you know I tried. about us. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, so Lana Lake does operate a 501, uh, 501c3 uh, nonprofit entity uh, where we basically use other people's money to deliver U.S. government foreign aid in the agricultural sector. Oh. We know a lot about agriculture, and uh, about 35 years ago, our board decided we need to go help the world. And we've been doing it ever since. And so we do projects for USAID, USDA, recently Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And we deliver projects anywhere from uh, one year to five years, depending on the type of projects and where it is in the world. But there's a high risk. Uh, the further you go away from the corporate flagpole, the bigger the risk is. And that's uh, now we have risks to not just businesses, but we have risks to people working in high-risk country. As a security director, over the eight years, I've been to Afghanistan twice. I've been to Yemen twice. Because those are places where we operate, high-risk, high-risk country. And that business, that nonprofit entity has to pay for those services. It's not free. So I had to identify, how to monetize security back to the business and show them if you do it right the first time, you will not have to pay down the second time. Now, that's, that's an art form. That's not a science. But it really became about relationships with the people that oversee that business and getting them, uh, getting security embedded from the time they bid on these nonprofit projects. And security was not a thought process. It was a reaction after the fact. So now they didn't budget for security. Now in the proposal, security is identified and they budget for it from the get-go. So when we get deployed into a country, security has already been budgeted for, and it's part of the part of the building of the blocks of that particular project. So tell me about the challenges for the international uh, divisions. Here we have 50 states. Land Lakes is in 50 states. That's a big enough challenge as it is, right? It is. Nationally. But now we're in 100 countries, each with its own culture, its own uh, agendas, its own products, and its own leadership. How, how did you get a consensus among all those various leaders around the world to get this into one program. Yeah, I can tell you right uh, from the get-go, we had to write some policies, and we had to write policy where it would work for the entire enterprise. And that was a two-year effort to get everybody to agree right. on the words and that policy. But we got there, and it, uh, and it was a lot of meetings, a lot of discussions. We had to change the way people were thinking about uh, security. And when you get into international arena, uh, culture is a big deal. You get into a country and you, 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 what works in Kansas does not work in Kenya. Right. And so you got to adjust and it comes down to what, what is different. And what I like to remind folks, every risk management formula has a component of risk acceptance. And so what we don't accept in Kansas, we might have to accept in Kenya because culturally that's how it operates over there. So you got to be flexible. I think that's the secret sauce for me to be able to operate in different cultures in different countries. Not one shoe fits in every single scenario. So that brings my next question about risk appetite. What is a risk appetite? Explain that mm -hmm. to people. And why that's so important to understand that among all the various divisions. And that's a big question because even within a company, within my C-suite, different executives have different risk appetite. When you're talking in international arena, we today, we didn't have that when I started, but today, before we take on a project, 
we go through a risk assessment as part of the decision making. Do we want to be in that country? Are we willing to go there? And there's been projects that uh, I have been given veto authority to veto a project, and that came directly from our CEO. In eight years, I'm only vetoed two projects. Uh, one, uh, one was in uh, Yemen, and one was in a remote province in Afghanistan, where we just couldn't operate. Just right. uh, getting in and out just just wasn't going to work. And so it wasn't a veto that I got into the room and says, no, we're not going to do it. We sat down, and we talked to the executives, and laid out the business case, why it's not a good decision. And ultimately, the business came to that conclusion where I've already been to, but I had to bring the business along. Now, when you're developing this, how did you measure people's risk appetite? Was the company aggressive in general and say, hey, we're going to take some chances in security? Were they very conservative about it and say, we don't want any security risks? Where were they on the, on the meter when you started? So over the years, I've actually hired a couple of people that are part of my team. And that discussion first happened within our team. I, w- I would have one person on my team that had very low risk appetite and wanted to always say, no, we cannot do this. Right. Well, if I'm the security director and I always say, no, nobody's going to ask me the questions. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so you got to learn how to say yes, but. Right. So defining the but. Uh, so example, we might go into a particular country. I said, look, if you give me enough resources, money, understanding the risk with enough resources, I can protect you from anything as long as the resources are there. But security is not, uh, cannot become, it cannot be about security. Security is a service, and uh, the project doesn't exist for security. Security exists to, uh, so the, somewhere there's a fine line, and we got to together, this is, becomes down to relationships, we got to find that fine line and talk to the, t- talk to the folks about how, uh, you know, it's got to be their decision at the end of the day. And we would, uh, we help them to see the risk and think about it, then make the decision if that's still what they want to do. Now, people might assume that if, uh, the head of security says, you know what, I don't think I'd go there. Here's why. And it's logical, reasonable, and there's facts behind it, right? Most people uh, in the decision-making process would refer to you and say, okay, that's a good idea. Did you ever run across a point where people said, you know what, I don't really care what you say. We're doing it anyway. First, uh, in order to give advice, you got to have some credibility. That doesn't happen overnight. That takes time. And I've actually had the opposite happen to me, where I would say, I think we can go there. But because I outlined the story so well with the business, I know we're not going to go there, even though I recommended we could do it. So I've had the opposite happen. And I've actually had it happen several times where I think we can do this thing. And then after we have a discussion, the business decides on their own, they're not going to do that. So it's kind of a reverse of your question. What do you think was the most uh, useful feedback you received uh, when you're developing your strategic, strategic plan in the development phase, right? Mm -hmm. It's never done by the way, is it? It's never is. But let's say your first phase, it got close to being finished. Who came up and said, you know what? Here's some good advice for you. So let me get a little bit philosophical. Every entity in the world, whether you work for the government or nonprofits or anybody anywhere, they have a formal feedback process. Uh, It's an HR process where you get a formal feedback once a year or you might get a quarterly, however that works in your organization. I don't believe that's real feedback. That's required feedback. The organization says you're going to get this feedback and we're going to do it this way. Not real feedback. The real feedback is when the organization values what you do and they give you, they increase your budget or they allow you to hire new employees or they build a global operation center that costs half a million dollars because they value what you bring to the company. That's true feedback. And by that measurement, in my building years, my budget went out incrementally every single year, and every year I was able to hire a new person into the security department. That's real feedback. That's how I took the feedback from the business. What would you say was your most successful initiative you put forward 
during the development of the program? What, anything that people just jumped on and said, you know what, we can all get behind that? Right off the bat, in the, I would say in the first six months when I came to the company, and that's a good question, by the way. When I came in, I noticed two things. We had, uh, with 500 locations across the country, there's many guards across our company. And local, local, the local offices would contract for the guards. I looked, I reviewed the contracts. Uh, the contracts were not written properly. Most of the providers would provide those contracts. We didn't have the right protections in the, in the legalese of those agreements. So right across, the, uh, after we discussed it, I said, look, we should have one contract nationwide. Everybody else has a task order in the local offices, but we own the relationship with the national provider. That was, that was uh, one of the very first thing I've done. The second, the second initiative was along the same lines. Everybody did their own security systems, whether it's access control systems, cameras, burglar alarms, what have you. And none of the stuff talked to each other because everybody did different software, different vendors. Now we have one vendor, one technology, and you don't get to do it your way. There's a, there's a, it's centralized. There's a priority list based on threats, vulnerability, and risks associated with the location. And you might come to us and tell us you need, you need access control system, but we're going to tell you how to do it. What advice would you give our listeners to somebody that says, here you go, uh, here's your desk, we just built this new building over here, and you're the security director, go make up something for us, go create it for us. Well, what, what advice would you give them? Again, good question. The, uh, I try, I try. Yeah, you try, <laughs> and I give you credit. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the best piece of advice is, Look, security professionals traditionally come from uh, local or federal law enforcement or military. Yeah, it's true. Uh, not all, but a big significant right. uh, a bunch of us. That's where I uh, myself come from, the military background. And we, by the time we get to these positions, we've seen a lot, we've done a lot, and we feel like we understand this business of security. That doesn't mean anything in a corporate world. It means nothing. What they want in a corporate world is somebody that'll understand their business problems. So understanding the business, uh, as I, that's how we open this discussion, comes right back to it. It's really yeah. what it's all about at the end of the day. You got to learn to be a business partner, and you got to make decisions that mean something to the business. And there's many days that I will compromise. It's not the way I would do it if it was my business. It's not the way I would do it because I know more about security than somebody else maybe. But that's not my business. And so we comp- it's always a compromise every day. You got to come to work and you got to learn how to compromise on every decision you make because you might not always get it the way you would like to have it. That's how you add value to the enterprise you work for. Dr. Andrea Little-Lembago is the chief social scientist at Virtue.com, where she researches and writes at the intersection of privacy, cybersecurity, and geopolitics, while also guiding the company's technical thought leadership. Dr. Andrea, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on Security Management Highlights. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Now, we're going to talk about the General Data Protection Regulation. This controls the handling of information in Europe. Europe is so far ahead of the United States in this. Talk to us about what this means, and uh, maybe you can show us some of the contrast between the United States and Europe. Sure, and you're absolutely right. So when the GDPR came to effect last May, so we're almost at the one-year mark, the important thing about it is that it impacts all data of European Union citizens, and so that impacts U.S. corporations. And so for a while, I think many were under the belief that it would not impact companies in the United States, but it absolutely does. It impacts those that are holding European Union citizens' data. 
because the privacies extend beyond the European Union geographical borders. And so while the GDPR focused on protecting that data in the United States, we really have been flailing a bit and pursuing more of a patchwork approach where we've got different industries pursuing their own regulations. Um, the health industry is the most prominent with the HIPAA regulations. Um, and those are great and have been helping pr protect personal data for the health industry. Finance has some of their own. Well, that patchwork has been going on for a while. And then it wasn't until last year when California passed a pretty far-reaching Consumer Privacy Act that really started putting this even much more so on the agenda within the, within the United States. Because we now are starting to see increasing hearings brought to the United States, to, to, the, to the Senate, and to Congress discussing the various ranges of data breach and, and unauthorized data access. And so with California pushing forth the legislation that's gonna come into effect in 2020, more and more states are actually starting to make similar proposals at their, at their state capitals. And it's at the point where there are over 90 different data privacy proposals uh, in state capitals right now in the United States. And a lot of those are falling on the, on the heels of what was done in California. And so that makes it even more of a patchwork and more complexity is starting to occur. And given all that, uh, but, you know, it's going to become increasingly hard for businesses to, to stay on track of these regulations, especially because some in the states actually contradict each other um, as far as you know, what, how to respond to a data breach and so forth. And so it's just becoming really, really complex and convoluted in the United States, whereas the GDPR is moving ahead. I wouldn't say seamlessly, but at least it's, it's making some significant progress in protecting data. We've seen some big fines for Google. Um, Italy just uh, initiated its first fine. And so we're starting to see much greater movement on that side while the U.S. really is, is kind of muddled in some complexity right now. So this protects the data of individuals. It's pretty strict, I, I have to say. I've, I've read up on it. And it really gives the citizens a lot of rights, such as, hey, I'm going to erase my data. Uh, no, you have to opt in. No, you have to have my affirmative permission to collect and store my data. Then they have regulations on how long they can store it and stuff. And I think this stuff is very good, right? I don't see how they get around it with a big company like Google. But I'm more concerned about a company knowing what books I read or ordered, right, than I'm about what my address is. That's where we're starting to see more and more of a push on what data is being actually um, captured and collected by these companies. And so we're seeing that you know, the different approaches to even what, what data is allowed to be collected uh, in addition and making sure the consumers opt into that. And so it could be anything from whatever browser you're using, you know, what, the, what the settings are for what can be collected along those lines. And so those browsers will have to move away from the status quo, which is basically assuming that they can collect everything until you opt out of it and then making sure that you opt into certain, certain personal information being collected. Because I mean, so the other challenge with it is some people don't mind at all what, you know, if, if, you know, if Google knows what books you're reading because they find that it gives them better insights or they don't care about you know, what books are we are shopping because that then enables Amazon to provide more targeted and customized you know, shopping ideas. And so that's where the customization has to, you know, it plays a really key role and where the, the opt-in notion comes into play so that what your preferences are may be different from another person's preferences and you can opt into those uh, various facets for what actually is being collected on you. You know, that assumes really much greater customer knowledge and consumer knowledge in this area. And we're still at a point where consumers are, are really starting to pay attention to it over the last year. I'd argue, you know, Cambridge Analytica really brought a lot of these issues to the forefront even more so than GDPR within the United States. Just because consumers were really just not aware that the extent and overreach of some of the data collection efforts that were going on. So I think what we'll increasingly see some some focus and notice on that, on what data is being collected and, and how consumers can opt into that versus the, the current status quo. But it's going to take some time, you know, and it'll take some cultural shifts, especially in the United States, as far as caring much more so about what data is being collected and then, then having that, that autonomy and control over your own data. And then we'll still see organizations try and skirt around it. And then you also have organizations that may not even know what data they're collecting. I mean, that's also the state of affairs in, in some of these 
these organizations, or you've got some of the data brokers whose business basically relies on collecting as much data as possible and then selling it. And that's why Vermont actually passed the data broker's law, providing more transparency in that area. So we're, we're seeing some movement, and but we're, we're for sure we have a long way to go, and this is going to be something that evolves over time. Even GDPR is, is something that what we see today, I, I imagine that over the next few years, as lots of lessons are learned, uh, we'll, ha- we'll see some some adjustments to it. So talk to us about this loophole I read about. It's not really a loophole, but it, it, it confuses me. So the regulations do not apply to the processing of data by a person for purely personal or household activity, and thus with no connection to a professional or commercial activity. And that's one of the, the big uh, pushback on, on GDPR is that the definitions need to be more fine-tuned in this area. There's also been pushback on what personal information is uh, as well. Um, there's you know, algorithmic transparency is another area. And so it's you know, that, that uh, the example that you just gave is, is one of several areas where we need some greater clarification to actually figure out how to actually adhere to these various policies for, for organizations. And then whether that is the appropriate separation as far as what you're doing at home, because I mean, you're absolutely right. These companies are still collecting that data regardless. Um, and then deciding whether it's being used for collecting or uh, for, for commercial purposes or not is interesting. And that's a good example for an attempt to try and counter that kind of issue that's going on. Uh, in the California Consumer Privacy Act, there's been another push just over the past month or so to evolve beyond the, the, what the definitions are for collecting and sharing of that information. So for a while, it was just focused on the collecting um, and sharing for profit. And what the, the new push, and it hasn't been passed yet in California, well, it's something to keep an eye on, is that it doesn't matter whether it's for profit or not, it's just what data is being collected and shared, period. And it is trying, and I think that is one approach to try and address that loophole because Many of these companies are saying that they're collecting and sharing the data, but they're, but they're not profiting from it. And so that doesn't fall under a regulation like this. And that, that, that's, that's sort of how, how some of the companies are getting around it. When at the end of the day, it still is monetized. It's just not directly monetized. You know, there are other ways, that, you know, like you said, it's a loophole to work around. It. The money can come in other means versus directly direct payments for that data. Tell me how the average consumer would benefit from this if they're using Facebook. I'm not picking on Facebook, but of course, everybody knows that Facebook collects all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons. Are they more restricted in Europe because of this? And that's actually one of the issues with GDPR is that as it came to effect, there weren't as many, the the, the foundations weren't established to actually follow up on on every uh, complaint for a violation so far. And so I would argue the majority of the the complaints that have been brought forth have yet to be pursued yet because the the infrastructure is not in place to follow all of them. But for a company like Facebook, you know, a good example of for us, for consumers who might be used on Facebook, you know, there was a recent example of how Facebook was leveraging phone numbers that were used for two-factor authentication. And so that's a, that, you know, that's a, a good security practice is ensuring that you have the two-factor authentication to secure your, your accounts. But turns out they were using all those phone numbers that were used to you know, go into their, their, their massive data storage and help, you know, and they were sharing it and using it and in, in, in processing within their algorithms for you know, additional networking and connect, connectivity that they were creating, which is a huge violation of privacy. And so that would be GDPR requires that opting in knowing what is being used with or knowing how your phone number is being used and so that's a good example of how gdpr should come to you should have an impact on something like facebook uh but it's going to take some time to get the get a smooth processing process uh in place for the violations i knew there's a reason i keep getting uh, pop-up ads for bird baths on facebook i knew there was something going on there (laughs) andrea lombago (laughs) andrea little lombago virtue.com thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, and uh, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe is one to watch for sure. Thanks again. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for your time.